You know, I guess I think I've always been a professional critic, you know, or some sort of professional appreciator or something. This is serious business here, man. Putting on a great show is the most important thing you can do. One great rock show can change the world. Eleven Dream Day has been recording for three decades now, but it's never lost any of its fire. I'm Jim DeRogatis. And I'm Greg Cott. Eleventh Dream Day joins us for an interview and live performance. And then we'll review the new album from the French electronic band M83. That's all coming up on Sound Opinions. This is Sound Opinions, Jim, and later on in the show, we're going to have 11th Dream Day in the studio, which is great news. And uh, one of the very very first guests we had on Sound Opinions when we came over to public radio was 11th Dream Day, the guitarist and singer in the band Rick Rizzo. We were trying to... uh, emulate that uh, 70s commercial with Ella Fitzgerald, the Is It Live or Is It Memorex commercial. She breaks the the, the glass with her voice. Exactly. And we're going to try to have Rick do that with his guitar. So we brought his amp in. He was cranking that baby up for about 20 minutes. We had loud, ear-shattering noise in the studio throughout throughout WBEZ that day, but we didn't quite break the glass. No, I think I took a hammer to it in the end. That's later in the show, but first we have some music news. Yeah, I'm losing my edge. I'm losing my edge. The kids are coming up from behind. That is a little bit of LCD Sound System, Greg, a band you and I loved. It seems like only yesterday that it broke up. It was five years ago. Now it's reunited, and it is going to headline each of the three biggest music festivals in America this summer. The lineups have been announced for Coachella, for Bonnaroo, and for Lollapalooza. You can look at any one of them and think you're looking at all of them. Such a duplication in many of the acts, especially further down the bill. Ellie Golding, you want to see her? She's playing at all three of those festivals. M83, the uh, electronic French band we're going to pl- uh, review later in the show. They're at all three. Uh, like I said, LCD Sound System, at all three. There are a few differences here and there. Coachella also has Guns N' Roses and Calvin Harris. Lollapalooza's got Red Hot Chili Peppers and and uh, J. Cole and Jane's Addiction. What what century is this? <laughs> and uh, Bonnaroo has got J. Cole and Pearl Jam. But the festivals, as we've been saying for several years now, are starting to be all the same. Very little distinction. In an unprecedented triple bylined editorial in the New York Times recently. The three music critics over there, John Perella's Ben Ratliff and John Karamanica, wrote together that these festivals used to be somewhat exciting. If exciting means special and special means rare and rare means meaningful, they aren't anymore. They said we are deciding not to cover these giant festivals this year. We're going to go to smaller, more boutique festivals and, of course, regular concerts. What's going on? Well, the Times says these festivals are about variations in clothes, drugs, topography, and regional weather, and they have less and less to do with the sounds coming from the stages. What do you think at home? Are you still looking forward to going to these festivals for the music and not for the scene? Give us a call, 888 859 
1-800-848-1800. The Sound Opinions Hotline. We'd love to air your thoughts. I'm trying to keep my faith. We on a ultra light beam. We on a ultra light beam. This is a God dream. This is a God dream. This is everything. That is a little bit of the latest Kanye West album, The Life of Pablo, which was made exclusively available on the Tidal music service. You remember Tidal, Jim? It rolled out with a much fanfare a year ago. That was the silliest press conference in like the history of press conferences. <laughs> yes, we had all these major stars up there. They're, they're co-owners, you see. Uh, yeah, Jay-Z yeah, yeah. Is, uh, is an owner, and uh, Madonna and Alicia Keys and Arcade Fire, all these major artists. Criticisms of Tidal has been that it has not offered any hard numbers on what it is exactly servicing here. Now they have come up with some stats about their year-long service. 2.5 million subscribers have been added to the initial half million, giving them 3 million subscribers. That's not bad. I mean, 45% of those are paying the nearly $20 a month fee in order to get better sound quality. According to Tidal, that Life of Pablo album streamed 250 million times in Hmm. 10 days within its release. That's a little bit dubious. There have been a few critics that have said there is no way it could have streamed that many times. SoundCloud has jumped into the game as well. It is now offering a $10 a month service for subscription-only users. It has 175 million subscribers already, but it's all for free right now. What they are looking for is those uh, access to those 125 million tracks that are available on SoundCloud. That is quadruple what services like Spotify and Apple Music are offering. It remains to be seen whether some of those subscribers will matriculate over to the paid service in order to escape the advertising. Meanwhile, Spotify continues to have a huge lead in uh, the uh, number of subscribers it has. It just passed the 30 million subscriber mark. Second place is the Apple Music service, which debuted back in June. They are claiming 11 million subscribers, so Tidal trailing way behind those two leaders with a mere 3 million. You're listening to Sound Opinions, and that's 11th Dream Day with the People's History off their newest album, Works for Tomorrow. That album features core founding members Rick Rizzo on guitar, Janet Beveridge Bean on drums, and uh, veteran Chicago bass player Doug McComb, as well as Mark Greenberg on keyboards and Jim Elkington, who's also playing guitar. You know, Jim, you and I both saw this band in its early days. I, I remember being completely inspired by them uh, when they were playing in the 80s indie rock scene in Chicago. In fact, they had, you know, emerged to such a status in Chicago that they were actually headlining a show at uh, one of the big rock clubs in Chicago, uh, Metro, ahead of a little band called Nirvana. Yeah. So, yeah. you know, there was a lot of feeling that 11th Dream Day was going to be a very big fish in what was then a, a small pond, at least commercially. Indie rock was ascendant, but it certainly wasn't on the commercial level of a Michael Jackson or an MC Hammer. But at the time, they seemed like the band coming out of the Chicago scene. 11th Dream Day got signed to the major labels even before the alternative thing exploded. They, uh, they went over to Atlantic in 1989. They released three records for the label, a lot of critical praise, but not a lot of sales, and Atlantic dropped the band. That wasn't the end of the story, though. The group has gone on to make music, seven more albums since then. When you think about making music that is so strong 
over four decades. It's remarkable enough. But then you think, you know, there's also these things that get in the way, like life and other projects. Rick Rizzo uh, teaches. Janet uh, is is making music with Freakwater. Mark's done production for Wilco. Jim's touring with Wilco's Jeff Tweedy. Doug's going to be on the show again uh, in a couple of months with uh, Tortoise, his other band. I don't think they would have ever envisioned any of this way back when. But here's Rick Rizzo talking about the early goals for 11th Dream Day. Well, it surely wasn't about being a big success because that just didn't even seem like it was in the, you know, the, the possibility. So really writing, I guess when you write your first songs, it's all, uh, we, we were writing a lot about just things from the newspaper. Jan and I wrote a little together, I think, and uh, wrote parts for each other. And But really there was no sense that this was going to go anywhere, mm-hmm. really, even when we were on Atlantic. <laughs> <laughs> You know, Greg and I have talked about this in the past when we talk about the 80s era, the sense of community. You guys would travel to Madison or to or go back home, Janet, to Louisville. And, you know, there were floors to sleep on and bands that would book you and let you headline and you'd do the same when they would come here. To what extent does that sense of community still exist or is it lost? What do you think, Janet? Well, I, I can't speak for young bands. I'm sure it still exists for young bands to a certain degree. Uh, for me, when we travel, yeah, there are bands that still come and sleep in my house. And, and when I go to their town, I, I do that. And it's like a giant world of people that you get to know because you play music. And mm. that's a really beautiful thing. You know, you can. I've got friends all over the world because of this. And that's... That's one of the reasons why it's such a satisfying thing to do. So I think community is still a big part of it. Rick, you're teaching songwriting at Columbia College. We're colleagues there in Chicago. Is that evident to 21 and 22-year-old kids uh, starting out in music, this idea of pay it forward? Yeah, well, I try to make that very clear. And whenever whenever we have guests come in to speak to the class, that, that's a common theme, paying your dues, sleeping on floors. You know, there's no there's no easy way to do it. Just get out there. And uh, and make friends and network and so I, I think we ne- didn't really call it networking back then. No, no, <laughs> no never. <laughs> I can't imagine in the van no. for seven hours on the road. No branding, no networking, none of that. Yeah, I, and I don't know what it's like for a band going out now. I mean, we would play. I remember playing South Carolina, and the, like some people like you want to come stay at our house. We'll make you a big thing of spaghetti till three in the morning, you know, and talk to you all night. And, uh, you know, it's like that was all over the country, and uh, I don't know if that still exists, but uh, it still exists. Yeah, he's still That's, doing it. I mean, it's still it's still out there. People are still doing that. Says Doug McCombs, mm. the yeah. voice of authority over there with the most impressive beard I think we've had on Sound <laughs> Opinions ever, Doug. That's impossible. That well, Billy Gibbons was, uh, don't forget, we oh, had we Billy had Gibbons, Gibbons once, so I think it was yeah. slightly longer well, than Well, he's the but, master. Yeah. He's yeah. The, uh, beard master. <laughs> he, he cancels me out by about a power of 20. So, so one thing that hasn't changed from that era, though, there were great bands in Chicago that weren't necessarily selling lots of records, certainly were not nationally or internationally known. We're playing to maybe a dedicated core of 50 to 100 people a night. I remember seeing 11th Dream Day a half dozen times at a club in a drug den neighborhood, uh, batteries not included, with a, like, what, a six-inch stage. Doug, you joined this band a, a couple years in. You've been there ever since. This turned into a life for you, music, playing music. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, what was the experience like of being part of that scene in, in the mid-'80s? Well, I mean, before I played in 11th Dream Day, 
I had opportunities to maybe start a couple of different bands that ended up not really working for me. And when I started playing with these guys, I knew that this was a band that was like a, a real band. My criteria was high. And so playing with 11th Dream Day in the mid 80s was like more than I could ever hope for, really. I mean, when I'm explaining my criteria, I should say that I wanted to play in a band that was had the potential to be as good as my heroes. And 11th Dream Day ended up being that. I mean, we've touched on like the whole community thing. It was so amazing to be playing with your friends' bands and touring. If it was only the old days we wanted to talk about, we wouldn't have you guys in. This album, Works for Tomorrow, is incredible, and you're going to play a tune from it, yeah? We are. What are you going to play, uh, Janet? What are you guys going to play first? Vanishing Point.
Vanishing point from 11th Dream Day. That uh, I really feel glad that I have that wall of plexiglass between me and Janet, <laughs> Janet Bean because I felt I was going to get pounced on if there wasn't. But uh, pretty awesome performance here in the studio. Uh, and I have to give it to you guys. Over 30 years, this group has been together, and uh, they have 11 studio albums and a bunch of other releases as well, in addition to spin-off projects uh, by many of the members in this group. Doug and Tortoise, of course, uh, Janet in Freakwater, which is coming out with a record this year. And yet, 11th Dream Day remains a common denominator for everybody in this room. Janet, why do you keep coming back to 11th Dream Day? Why do you keep doing this? Why do you keep slamming those drums and <laughs> belting out those vocals the way you do in this group? I just, you know, I, I love it more than anything, really. You know, I mean, I, I play in Freakwater, and I love that. I love the way I get to sing in Freakwater and, and singing those kind of melodies. I love that. But there's just something that I can't even really describe about the satisfaction of being in a song in this band. That's the great thing. Doug, what about you? You've got probably more on your plate in some ways than in, in terms of just music. You've got multiple projects, and yet you always find time for 11th Dream Day. I mean, this was the starting point for me. This is like being in 11th Dream Day opened me up to being able to play a lot of different music, and that's something I wanted to pursue was playing in a, all these different groups that I play in satisfy some need I have to play different styles or slightly different styles or with different people, mostly just the idea of playing with different people. But uh, 11th Dream Day satisfies a thing that none of the other ones do. And it, it's sort of, that's just the way it is. I mean, you know, if I had my way, like no band I've ever played in would ever break up. But <laughs> so far, I've, you know, I've been, I've been pretty lucky to keep most of them together. And uh, it's like what Janet said. There's just like a thing about being in this group in the middle of a song that's like intensely satisfying. We'll hear more about that intensely satisfying sound from 11th Dream Day in a minute on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and PRX. And later, the new album from festival favorites M83. Stay tuned. i 
Welcome back to Sound Opinions. That is Beach Minor from the 1988 album Prairie School Freakout by our guest this week, 11th Dream Day. You know, that track uh, showcases the vocals of Janet Beveridge Bean and Rick Rizzo, the founding members of the band. They were married to each other. They had a child together. They're divorced now, but they've remained bandmates all that while. After 40 years of making music as 11th Dream Day, I asked Rick if it's as enjoyable playing guitar now as it was back in the beginning. Absolutely, although I didn't start playing guitars till I was 21 or 2. Really? Yeah, I thought it was I thought it was too late to start, but uh apparently it wasn't. I I get the same thrill as you know, like when I was a kid, I was I had the tennis racket and you know, jamming along to Jimi Hendrix with my <laughs> tennis racket, but um I get the same feeling playing guitar and and just getting the sonic blast out of the speakers. When I first sit down and write a song, it just comes to me and and I'll I'll plug into my old Music Man amp and put it on distorted overdrive low in the house and I'll just start jamming it and I just I can just do it for hours. And when I don't have that in my life, it feels really empty. To play, I, I just like, it's the best feeling when you first write something and you start strumming those chords. surprised to hear you say you didn't pick it up that late because in the 80s you know you had a new breed of guitar heroes for rock fans in the know your name was always up there as a guitar hero do you, do you feel that when you sit out to do a solo you're like i better be as good as they say i am you know i i've never thought of myself as being that great of a guitar player i think it goes straight from somewhere inside me to the strings but i have no idea what i'm doing <laughs> my my hands are too small like i can't do scales because I, my my spread is just like like a baby's hand and so i've got this style like predicated on trying to make do with my physical and, and mental limitations and, and somehow miraculously it comes out with something that people seem to like i like it that's all that really matters and the band likes it i think like I, I don't i don't like it <laughs> <laughs> doug's leaving something well, I, i've always wanted to tell you I, rick <laughs> i am the worst guitar player in our band i'm pretty sure of that Jim, waited, is, Jim is nodding in agreement over there. Yeah, certainly. <laughs> you, you made a string of two guitar, bass, and drums, starting with the Prairie School Freakout in 1988, which I still think is a record that was ahead of its time. I think if that record had been released in 91, different story maybe in a lot of ways in terms of recognition, but a series of really great records there, Rick and Janet and Doug, who were in the band at the time. And what was exciting about it was that there was an element of chaos. Janet, you sort of alluded to this earlier where you didn't know what was going to happen. And you sort of preserved that sense of chaos in the songs and yet had original songwriting to go with it. Rick, when uh, you got signed by Atlantic, I think nobody was more surprised than the people in the band. And that, again, was sort of ahead of the curve. The major labels were picking off indie bands for a while there, but the early 90s became a feeding frenzy. You sort of were ahead of that curve a little bit. Uh, well, uh, didn't Nirvana open for you yeah. When they came to Chicago for the um, first time? Within a year, Nirvana opened for us, yeah. and then uh, Smashing Pumpkins opened for us, both at Metro. Um, so yeah, we were the stepping stone to success. 
Um, <laughs> <laughs> Billy Corgan doesn't even take your calls anymore, right? Well, you know, you know, people forget you were you were selling out shows at these venues back then. You know, we you were, were, but we've you know, but we were all, we've always been in terms of the commercial sense, we've always been slightly out of time, either ahead of it or behind it or somewhere around it, but never right there at the moment at the right time. And I think maybe when it was, and we was was uh, maybe the Live to Tell record, our second record for Atlantic. And the label, the, 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 you know, our little corner of the, of the label, the alternative, or what, I don't know what they called it back then, but it imploded. And there was a key point for the band, I thought. You make the records for Atlantic, they're good records. People who did hear them loved them. The tours were great. There was no sense of inertia or stasis within the band, but there certainly was from a commercial standpoint. A lot of bands break up at that point. We got the run, we got our shot. It didn't work, at least commercially. What kept the band together at that point? Well, I think part of it, you know, well, after El Mudio kind of tanked commercially, um, you know, I made the decision to go back to school and get a teaching certificate. And we had a son, Jan and I had a son who really needed some attention at home and not go on the road. That said, we were still going to go on the road with our indie record, Ursa Major. And the reason we did that was just we had Wink in the band. It was sounding great. And we made this totally weird record. Ursa Major is a strange record for us after the three Atlantic ones. Uh, it was really a... a, a I don't know, moving in a totally different direction, and it felt great. So, and, and I think, you know, every few years that happens with us, and there's never any reason to stop. I think when you ask, you know, giving it another shot or something, it wasn't like we were intending that shot to hit something in particular, <laughs> you know? I mean, we, we were just playing the music, and as long as we were allowed to make the music, we would just keep doing it. So it wasn't, we didn't have a goal, like, if, if this record doesn't sell this amount, we're going to break up or, you know, I'm going to start a new band. And and I know a lot of times I think that's what it takes to become a, a super popular band, you know? I mean, I think it takes that sort of drive and that, uh, that desire, but I don't think that was that's never really been in any of our DNAs, I don't think. Well, why don't you play for us? What, yeah. what, 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 what else you got? Let's do... Um, Cheap Gas. Oh, we were going to do tell Go Tell It. it yeah. yes. Go Tell It. Yeah. 
ferocious stuff. Go tell it. 11th Dream Day on Sound Opinions. Uh, the best guitarist in the band, Jim Elkington, tearing it up on, on top of that song. And uh, the second best guitarist, uh, Rick Rizzo, uh, uh, ushering it out. Um, Jim comes on board fairly recently, right? You mentioned this name earlier, Wink O'Bannon. He was the second the second, second guitarist at 11th Dream Day, Baird Feige early on. You guys were known for these great guitar duels. Then a long stretch of 11th Dream Day being a one-guitar band, for all intents and purposes. Right. Little other stuff here and there. Um, how did Jim come on board? How is it being a two-guitar band again? Well, we were playing um, a show at the Millennium Park here in Chicago, and it was uh, on our last record, and Janet broke her ankle the day before the show, so Jim, being the multifaceted guy he is, he plays drums. I had to teach that day that we were playing at the park. That was because it's life. a small gig, you know, for like yeah, fifty thousand people, yeah, yeah. right? Um, they they practiced together, Doug and, and Mark and Jim, and Jim learned all the songs on drums. Janet sat up there and played tambourine and sang. Uh, like this guy's this guy's good, and so and he went on tour with us on that record too to Europe. And ripped it up, and it, it just felt right. It felt great. So when we recorded, of course, Jim, he had to play. And uh, and now, you know, he knows too much. He can't get out. Uh, <laughs> now uh, you're in for 30 years, yeah, Jim. Yeah, if I've got He's 30. got 30 years to spare. Yeah, maybe. There, there you go. <laughs> Before we get too far away from it, Rick, uh, I want to talk about the lyrics of Go Tell It. Now, you're reinterpolating, reimagining, referencing, whatever you want to call it, Go Tell It on the Mountain there, the famous spiritual... Um, what are you doing there as a songwriter? Oh gosh, well, I was I was just I was getting into uh, my past a little bit. I my mom used to sing that song that that she sang. Go tell Aunt Bessie. I know it's go tell Aunt Rhody, but um, it was the first lullaby that I remember, mm. and it's so kind of dark. Go, you know, the the old gray goose is dead. Go tell Aunt Rhody. Go tell Aunt Rhody. Go tell Aunt Rhody. The old gray goose is dead. But I was just, I was recalling my mom and, and my past, which I was trying to deal with lyrically on this, on the songs that I wrote for this record. And it's, but it's really affirming uh, lyric overall. I know that the situations are dark, you know, going on the back roads with your high beams and, mm. uh, you know, oncoming traffic and standing on uh, at Highbridge in Kentucky with the train coming, uh, which I actually did for fun, for fun not to do anything dangerous. But the song's about really, I'm okay, I'm, I'm coming out on the other side all right. Mm. Yeah, most people, when they get introspective and dark, they, they get quieter. You guys are going in the opposite direction. <laughs> I, you know, I felt I had to scream it a little bit. Yeah. I'm always telling Rick to turn it up. Yeah, there are no ballads on this record, Janet. I, I understand that was your doing to, to some degree. Kind of. I, you know, I mean, I thought that we just... I mean, I, I suppose there's some softer songs on the yeah. record, but um, I don't know. I, I, I think that uh, something kind of cohesive and just like a freight train, you know, with nothing really to, to slow it down in between would be really good. <laughs> a freight train. Very good. I want you to talk a little bit about the idea 
of a band being able to basically keep three core members for as long as you guys have had the three of you in the band and recording every two, three, four years, consistently good, good records, and, and not turning it into, you know, let's jump in the van. I think when people think about bands, they think about 24-7 living together in the clubhouse and let's all make a record together and then go on tour and do this for year after year. And you guys certainly aren't that model at all. Has it been good for the creativity for you to be writing songs in that sort of an environment as opposed to, I'm thinking about this 24-7? Yeah, we were never that kind of band that would go to the rehearsal space and start to jam and get a song out of it. So it's not really that different in that regard. But when we do have material, we get together, we practice for a couple of weeks, and we've been playing, doing these little residencies, like playing every Sunday at a place like The Hideout in Chicago and, and, and just getting the stuff ready so that when we go in the studio, we did 13 tracks on this record in total, and we recorded them all on the first night. And I like the way that energy translates to your recording. It gives it some immediacy. But we don't have a big budget, so we, we go in and blast them out, and uh, that's how we keep doing it. I think that if we had been on a, a label that might have had some sort of uh, expectations beyond just releasing something that they could feel proud of and we could be happy with, I think you know we might not have been able to have the same trajectory. But being on uh, Thrill Jockey, while the budgets have never been large for us, and uh, we've uh, also had the luxury of not being you know harassed or. Uh, <laughs> Um, doing things that are old t- are on our own time, you know, table. And uh, I think that's sort of what's allowed us to keep going because, you know, Doug has other projects, I have other projects, everybody does. And so we do it when we can. And then it's really exciting when we get to do it. I think one of the maybe the drawbacks might be that you're not, when you're not together for long periods of time like that. Doug, is it like getting back on a bicycle when you're, when you're, in the room with with these guys or is it kind of like we have to get reacquainted how does that work when you get back together to start making music again with oh, it's, Dream Day? it's it's never it's never unusual it's it's just like i mean you know first of all it's never that long there's never the stretches between 11th dream day playing are never very long i mean maybe a few months at the most so whenever we get together to play it's very natural mark you've recorded the band right i don't want to say producer Right, but you're in the role of being the adult in the room, I imagine. What what is that like? No, really. I mean, I'm just the one that presses the buttons. You know, it comes out Eleventh Dream Day, so you know, I just wanted to make sure it remained badass, and and <laughs> we didn't want to sand off anything. You know, just have it be. Mark's point. being humble. He, he, is. he, he yeah. really. He is. The, the, what he did for this record, um, in terms of uh, engineering it and. Uh, and really mixing it was was really great. You know, it's 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 got a great sound, and I, I think uh, we owe that to Mark. I've got no advice to share. I know nothing anyway. The truth ends on your humble ears. It works for tomorrow. Mark, you've been uh, in a number of bands in Chicago and elsewhere. You worked at a club that. 11th Dream Day used to play at a lot, Lounge Acts, and so you were observing the band from relatively close proximity, but you were not in the band during part of that period. What's your sense of where this band has come and gone in terms of the last few decades of observing them and now being in the band? Well, 
I still feel like I'm observing them in some ways. I feel like I have the best seat in the house when I when I play with Eleventh Dream Day, and um, and also living in Chicago in the '90s, like everybody loved Eleventh Dream Day, kind of like everybody loves the Beatles. You know, there wasn't really you just there wasn't really a choice in the matter. You just you love Eleventh Dream Day. Why wouldn't you? So getting to play, I first started playing with Rick in a band called Chestnut Station, and that's how we got to know each other. And uh, and luckily. Uh, right around that time, John McIntyre was adding a lot of keyboards to uh, to an Eleventh Dream Day record, which has gotten me a lot of gigs. John McIntyre adding keyboards to people's records. <laughs> <laughs> so thank you, John. You're listening to Sound Opinions, and we are here with Eleventh Dream Day. How about another song, guys? What are you going to play, Rick? Uh, we're going to play another song from our Works to- for Tomorrow record. It's called Cheap Gasoline. and tea and waking dreams driving with no destination she feels and she
11th Dream Day live on Sound Opinions. We we have got to do this every 30 years. <laughs> it has been our pleasure to host 11th Dream Day in the studio today. That means Rick, Janet, Doug, and Mark and Jim have been our guests. Thanks so much for coming in. Thank you so much for having Thank us. You. That wraps up our conversation with 11th Dream Day. Have you been following the band since its origin? What are your memories of the indie rock heyday of the late 80s and early 90s? Share your thoughts at 888-859-1800. Coming up, we'll review the new album from the French electronic outfit M83. That's in a minute on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and PRX. Welcome back to Sound Opinions. I'm Greg Cott with Jim DeRogatis, and that's a little bit of the new M83 album, a song called Do It, Try It, from the album called Junk. M83, it's uh, basically a one-man band now, Jim. Anthony Gonzalez is the uh, co-founder of the group. He's had a rotating cast of collaborators over the last decade plus, early 2000s in France, and uh, since moved to Los Angeles. He made a series of recordings, started out in his bedroom, became increasingly more elaborate, moving into real-time studios, working with string sections and brass, incorporating other musicians into his compositions. Did a couple of film scores, including that sci-fi Tom Cruise movie, Oblivion, Oblivion, which did major box office numbers. And that's probably the highest profile thing that Anthony Gonzalez has worked on. But his 2011 album, Hurry Up, We're Dreaming, also 
got a lot of acclaim and a lot of commercial success. It was Grammy-nominated. And coming off of that into making the Junk record, there was a sense that M83 was on the verge of something. They've been booked on the second tier of headliners at all these major festivals around the world this summer. So if you're looking for this band uh, to see him on tour, just check out the nearest festival. They're probably <laughs> playing on that bill. Here's a, a track from the new record, Junk, called Solitude by M83 on Sound Opinions. That was Solitude by M83 from its seventh album, Junk. An appropriate name, Greg. I'll get into why in a minute. The long-running history of this group, seven albums in, if you go back to 2003, Anthony Gonzalez, the one mainstay from the beginning, you know, there were points where they were fascinated, he and his collaborators at the moment, with Shoegaze and Krautrock. There's another point, must be mentioned, where they made a whole album inspired by Brian Eno instrumentals. There's been a lot of diversity as with that other great French electronic dance pop outfit, Daft Punk. But there's been an effort to craft concept albums, albums that stand together as a whole. Junk does not do that. Junk is all over the map. I read a couple of interviews with Gonzalez trying to figure out what he was doing here. Living in L.A. now, he says he was inspired by 70s and 80s sitcoms mm-hmm. like Punky Brewster and Who's the Boss? This is a direct quote. I feel like TV shows now are starting to sound and look the same. There's no more passion anymore. So this album is a tribute to the music from those old-fashioned shows. Wow. I don't know if, if emulating the music of Who's the Boss is anything worth doing. <laughs> there are some brilliant moments, some great dance pop moments on this album we heard two of them do it try it and solitude there's also some dreck i mean real 
bad, you know, make your ears bleed. Why am I listening to this? Moon Crystal, Ludivine, Sunday night, 1987. Sunday night, 1987. I was there. I don't want to go back. For the good moments, of which there are about four or five, this is a try-it record at best. Jim, uh, you might be a little generous there on your rating for it, uh, especially coming off of Hurry Up, We're Dreaming. I thought that was uh, a really emotional record. He was talking about, you know, his brother, growing up with his brother in, in, in the south of France. It sounds really idyllic, doesn't it? Yeah. But there's also an air of melancholy about it. And as you said, he did work this sort of concept album frame around that lushly orchestrated music. On this record, he almost seems to be, you know, poking fun at himself with this punky Brewster fascination, you know? (laughs) Like, you know, those TV sitcom soundtracks weren't very appealing back in the day. I don't see how resurrecting them is going to help you at all. It does sound cheesy. I mean, I, I would compare... Hurry up or dream to that seven-course gourmet meal that you're fixing, and here we've got the bubblegum and cheese coming out for a late-night appetizer. I mean, it's just, it feels very slight and intentionally so. The thing that I'm really missing in this music is the emotional connection that he was able to evoke with those machines. He's very proud of his array of vintage keyboards and synthesizers, and I think he's able to create emotional response with the way he orchestrates those instruments on top of the beautiful string and brass arrangements. But here it sounds very cheap and chintzy. The first half of the album Mm. is almost unlistenable. Things get a lot better in the second half. I think Solitude is actually kind of a turning point in the record. The string orchestration on that track is absolutely beautiful. He does some really surprising things in tracks like Laser Gun and Road Blaster, but that's a handful of tracks on an album that should be much better than it is, especially coming off as strong an album as Hurry Up, We're Dreaming was. I'm on the cusp of trash it for this particular record, but I do think there are a couple of worthwhile tracks. I'll give it a try at rating. That makes two of us, Jim. What do we got on the show next week, Greg? Next week, Jim, we've got a soundtrack for one of the most painful days of the year. (laughs) April 15th. Everybody knows what we're talking about, right? Tax Day. Sound Opinions was produced by Robin Lynn, Evan Chung, Alex Claiborne, and our intern, Libby Gormley. On Sound Opinions, everyone's a critic. So give us a call on our hotline, 888-859-1800. It's so hard when I'm feeling on fire, and all I can hold is the telephone wire. It's so hard being almost alone and lying here in the dark, making love on the phone. Love on the phone. Making love on the phone. Love on the phone. New messages. Hey, Jim and Greg. This is John from Austin. I just wanted to give you my South by Southwest pick from this year. It was a band I saw at the 29th Street Ballroom uh, called Jonathan Gatt. Uh, I think actually Jonathan Gatt's the name of the guitar player, but it was a uh, trio from Israel, kind of surf rock, psychedelic, with some Middle Eastern sounds mixed in, all instrumental. I don't tend to get very emotional at these concerts, but 
this one I was definitely tearing up with how intense it was by the end. So this one of the most incredible live experiences I've come across. You have a good one. Hi, South by Southwest. I didn't make it out this year, but I saw a band just before they hit South by Southwest. And I don't know if you were able to check them out. They're called The Accidentals. They play 22 instruments between the three of them. They went to school up in the UP at a creative arts college up there. Take a look. They're awesome. Thanks. Not seen, so mean. Lips that sting like Queen Frosting. She's got an icy disposition. She looked back and told me if she was smoking carbon black. I said, I'll see you in the green room. Hi, this is uh, Stephen Gomez from Mission Viejo, California, and I just got done listening to your uh, podcast for the music of 1991. My favorite album from 1991 is Blood Sugar Sex Magic by the Red Hot Chili Peppers. Give it away, give it away, give it away now. Give it away, give it away, give it away now. Give it away, give it away, give it away now. Growing up in uh, Southern California around that time, that was pretty much my soundtrack. And knowing that James Addiction was going to break up, this was the band that I was going to lean on during, during those times. So the rap rock and all those different genres owe something to the Red Hot Chili Peppers at that time when they were getting popular. Thanks. Hi, Jim and Greg. My name's Whitney. I'm in Chicago. My favorite album of 1991 is Tori Amos' Little Earthquakes. Tori Amos' Little Earthquakes was a revelation. I don't think very many things have been a revelation for me. I saw her in concert. It was a small theater. I was close to the front, and she blew me away. Snow can weigh a fork on my mittens. Wipe my nose, get my new boots on. I get a little warm in my heart when I think Put my hand in my father's She was playing a piano and sitting on a piano bench and singing. That was it. There was no one else on the stage and nothing else. And I was captivated. Thank you very much. I love your show. Hey, guys. This is Dave Osborne calling from East St. Paul, Minnesota. I loved the 1991 episode, but I got to say, I was disappointed you forgot to mention the greatest album of all time, which dropped in 1991, which is Talk Talk's Laughing Stock, uh, one of a kind and utterly brilliant. So just wanted to pass that along. Keep up the good work. Take care. No more messages. To share your opinions on Sound Opinions, call 888-859-1800. We'll be back next week on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and distributed by PRX.